The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. If you need a Bible, we are Redemption Bible Church, and so a part, uh, the central focus of our uh, Sunday um, service is the Word of God. And so we're going to open that now as we uh, get into it. And so Greg here has a Bible. If you don't have a co- your own copy of God's Word, just stick your hand up and he will get that for you. If you don't have sermon notes, um, he's also got those. Those are just helpful ways for you to follow along. I know maybe sometimes you're like, Blair, you're getting off into rabbit trails and all that. The notes will hopefully help you uh, stay on track with us. They're kind of like those signposts that help us know where we are in the message as we we open up God's word. And so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. Open your copy there. We're continuing on in our series through this great book. It's been Build What Lasts is what it's called, and it's been very helpful, very instructive for us as a church where we find ourselves in uh, uh, this season of life teaching us how to worship the Lord, teaching us how to relate to one another, and teaching us how to hope for the things to come. And so there's been this uh, common thread woven throughout this entire book, okay? There's been a, uh, well, as a matter of fact, this theme has actually uh, really found itself into almost every single passage of scripture that we've looked at in our uh, history, is we're building something here, right? We're building a vertical church that is pretty fired up about God's glory and the Great Commission, aren't we? That's what gets us fired up. And so this thread is woven throughout the scriptures. It's woven throughout where we are because it's integral to how we build one another up, okay? This is a thread. It's the key ingredient. It's the banner over everything. It's the string that holds it all together. It's the suspenders that keep the outfit together. And so I'm going to read our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 9. And we'll read to verse 12. It should be a paragraph like that. And as I read it, I want you to then tell me after I read it what you think that thread is, okay? You ready for it? Let's read it together. Well, I'll read it. You follow along here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 say this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right. What is it? What's the, what's the key ingredient? What's, what's been the thread that we've seen in all of these passages since we began? It is, say it louder. Love. That's right. You got it. Okay. And, and I love this about you. See, we, love is actually a common uh, word in our vocabulary, but I love this about you. You love God's word and you are able to understand it. You want to understand it. And so we see this here. 
But I love that about you. You love God's word. And so in our passage this morning, we have uh, uh, some instructions on how we build how we build one another up. And there's two defining characteristics of our manner of life. As we are about this work of building what lasts, of building a vertical church that is fired up about God's glory, the Great Commission, as we are fired up about discipleship and living among one another as Christ would have us, of living in this world in a winsome way, these are the things that define who we are. So verse nine is this. Our first point is we love one another God's way you're taking notes, that's our first point. We love one another God's way. Look here at verses 9 and 10. There's a specific love in view here, okay? This is brotherly love, as you see in verse 9. It's that uh, word that we get from the Greek word Philadelphia. Anyone know that city? Philadelphia, Philly, right? It just... You know, that one football team won some big game a couple weeks ago that uh, finds themselves in that city. But what that, is, uh, what that is, means, what the definition of that is a friendly, familial love, okay? And so this is, this is speaking of a type of affection that we have for one another within our family or even uh, within our friends. And so in English, the word love has lots of confusion around it, right? Because we have lots of words that, uh, or one word to define lots of things, right? One word that defines a lot of different meanings. And so when, we, when I tell my wife I love her, that's very different than how I might tell Cade I love him. And if you're a guest with us, I'm, I have a genuine affection, a love for you, but even that is different than how I love my wife and how I might love Kate or anybody else here. And so there's lots of different things. In the New Testament, we see two, okay? The Greek uh, language, the ancient Koine Greek is what it's called, is what the New Testament was written in. And they, there's two words that show up here. The Greek actually has four. I'm going to tell you them all right now just uh, for you who are curious about these things. This one here is that phileo love where we get Philadelphia. It's that familial, friendly love. And then there's also, and it's actually in this passage, it's in verse 10 when you see that love there. That's the word agape or the unconditional, self-sacrificing, uh, uh, selfless love that God has for us and we're to have for one another, all right? That unconditional love. Who's familiar with that one, agape? Heard of that? You know, some churches are named after that. There's like a big music festival in the Midwest named after it. But we see both of these words in our Bibles and even in this passage. There's two other words for love. The word eros, which is the uh, intimate uh, marital love between a husband and a wife. And there's also another word called storge, uh, which uh, is actually even more uh, familial related, even more than Philadelphia. It's like our love that we have for our children. Okay, a special love. So Greeks, they're, they're smart. They have four different words to, uh, to, to define four very different things. We, uh, whoever created English and how it's developed over time, we've shot ourselves in the foot. And there's all kinds of confusion. We only have one word to define all these different things. And so it's the w way that it works. But here, it's a very specific love that we have in mind. How we love one another. How we love the person sitting next to you. Not just uh, the person that you came with, but the person that's maybe like 18 inches away from you that you didn't come with. So as you kind of look over the corner, it's like, yeah, that person right there. 
That's the type of love that is in view here. This is our love for that. Previously, in the, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we saw this love that existed between Paul, or the leaders, and the people, and that uh, reciprocal love that they had for one another. But right here is just that. And notice what he says about this. Now concerning brotherly love, he says you don't have, any, you don't have no need for anyone to write to you, right? Because you've already been well taught. Because who's taught them? Look, what does it say there at the end of verse 9? Who has taught them to love? God, that's right. That's right. It's okay. You can respond. It's, it's good. I like that. You know, if I ask a question, even if it's like the most obvious, just to shout it out, it's, it's okay. We've been taught by God how to love. We are taught about love by multitudes of different people, Right? But who has the final say on what love is? It is the Lord, right? It is God himself that teaches us how to love in this manner. So what does he mean here that we've been taught by God? Saying, has he, is he telling them that you have this all figured out? No, they, they need to excel still more. He's saying that you've been taught by God, and this encompasses two different things. We've been taught by God intrinsically right? We know that we should love one another in this way because as soon as we are saved, there is this affection that is born in our heart for God's people, not just the ones that are here locally, but even notice how he commends them for the, that they have this love for the brothers in Macedonia. Macedonia was just the region that the city of Thessalonica was in, and so this bigger region, the Thessalonians knew that they were to love people all across the globe. And God teaches us. This is just ingrained to us, right? This is, this is not something that we need a lot of instruction on, right? We know that we love, it just comes naturally that we love our children, right? We love our families. David, when Cameron was born, did anyone need to tell you or teach you to love him? No. God, it's just intrinsic. It's ingrained in who we are, Right? We just know to love our children, to love our family members. The same is true of God's people. When we are saved, there is something that God does within us to teach us that these are our people, that we share a like precious faith, even beyond the external differences, even beyond the things that we may not see eye to eye on. There is this affection that we have for people. Their joys become our joys, their troubles become our troubles. But not only is this an intrinsic understanding that God teaches us, he also instructs us, right? All across God's word, that's why we've said it's a thread, we know that we are to love one another. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus taught this in Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your entire being, right? And what is the second greatest commandment? To Love your neighbor as yourself. And in these two things, what, hap what, is, what is captured? That in these two things, it, it's what? Yeah, it's basically, it sums up all the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament law, all those things can be summed up in these two things. So we're to love God and we're to love our neighbor, to love one another. Those things have been taught to us. What did Jesus instruct us? We know this back from John 13. He says, this new commandment I give you that you love one another. God has taught us the, the law is summed up in these things. Jesus himself taught us this. He, he goes even further than in John 15. He says, this commandment I give you to love one another. Greater love has no one than this, than he who lays down his life for a friend. friend. Right, for a friend. We've been well taught. 
we have these great and lofty commandments. We know that we are supposed to love the person sitting next to you. There's more. I mean, we, we haven't even gotten into 1 Corinthians 13. That tells us how to love. Uh, 1 John chapters 3, 4, 5. There's a lot about love in the scriptures. We have been taught by God. And so what Paul is saying here back in our passage, he's saying there has been much written you know what to do. And you've, you've been thoroughly taught. The information is accessible. You have the Bible right here in your hands. You have it. You're capable of showing it. They're commended for how well they do that. And, and I, I can honestly say here, we're to be commended. As guests have come in to our host, I'm, I hope if you are a guest, you felt loved and welcomed this morning, as others from our sister churches in San Antonio and Kerrville and Austin have come to visit us, you have shown and expressed great love for the body of believers. Maybe you've went to visit them and been participant in it as well. We've shown great love to our church plants in Albuquerque that we generously supported even when we were in core group and our church plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and being able to support them we want to continue to do this, continue to show love and support, not just to the brothers and sisters here in New Braunfels, but also abroad. Amen? We should continue to do that, those that are doing this great commission work. And so, we've been taught, even commended, so what's the deal here? What's the deal? Why is he bringing it up? Why, if it doesn't bear mentioning or needing any other teaching, what is the deal? Why does he bring it up anyways? Well, just like in the previous passion, uh, passage, he t uh, urged them to excel still more in their holiness, right? He is now urging them to continue to do this. We can't, as believers, just settle. We don't, we've never arrived or just ever figured it out. Love isn't like a season that kind of comes and goes. No, it is the consistent characteristic of God's people, this warmth and love that we have for one another. We must continue to do it more and more to continue to follow Christ, to continue to grow in our holiness and our expressions of love. And so let's do some diagnostic tests to get to the heart of this. We know it. We know that we need to do it. But sometimes where's the breakdown? It's in our heart, right? It's in our heart. Like, well, I know that I should. I know that this is right. I've been taught. I have it in front of me. But the breakdown comes right here. So I just have some diagnostic qu uh, questions for you. I just want you to answer these. And I want you to think of that person, that somebody in the room that maybe you don't know well. You don't have to point them out. don't have to do it. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. But just think, so you have a, a face or maybe it's the back of a head in uh, your mind right now. I want you to answer these questions in your own heart just to diagnose where you stand in your love for one another. First here, answer this. Do I want to know them. This person, do I want to know them? Do I want to? Number two, can I see beyond the obvious differences to understand their heart? That person can, you know, there's, we look different, come from different backgrounds, or maybe a different age, but can I see beyond those things and really truly desire to understand who they are to know their heart. Number three diagnostic question. Will I put their interests ahead of mine? She says, you get to know them. Maybe you answered yes, yes, this. Am I willing 
to put their interests ahead of mine. Number four, do I desire their spiritual growth? Do I desire their spiritual growth? Is that my number one desire? Is this how I can love them? I don't know necessarily where they are with the Lord, but that's why it's a process, right? Do I desire to see them in that process of becoming saved and then the saved matured and the matured multiplied all to God's glory? And so wherever we are in that, do I desire to see them growing in that spectrum? And last, am I willing to do what I can to help if asked? Am I willing to do what I can to help if asked? And as you answer these questions, they will expose the level of love that is truly within us, all right? And so if you've answered no to any of those, well, this is where you can excel, this is why he's saying we know that we're to do this. We know that we must love one another. We know that we, can't, we must excel. But uh, here, are, those are just some things to get to the heart of where we're at. As you think of that person, let God's spirit do his work and increase and grow you in love for one another. These questions are really meant to just get to the heart, to, to help us diagnose where we are, how what can we love and sacrifice for this person. That's the heart. But we're kind of a practical people, aren't we? We're a practical people. We say, okay, I've got to the heart, but what do I need to do then? How do I love that person in the pew next to me? How do I excel still more and more in this? Well, we do the things that love does in order to feel the things love feels, right? If, uh, if the feelings aren't there, if there are some, maybe some areas we need to grow then, then we just do this. And so this week, I asked a few people just uh, this question. What is one thing that I could do for you that would make you feel loved by me this week? Thank you for answering those questions if I asked you that. And they're going to come in here. So I came up with, here's just 10 practical ways to love the person in the pew next to you. Just pick one and do it. Pick one maybe that corresponds to the no that you just diagnosed within your own heart. These are going to be very simple, but they are ways that express love to people that we know. The first, very simple, give a hug. Give a hug. Give a hug. You know, I don't know who, there, there are a couple great huggers in this church. <laughs> I'll just say, one is Travis, Travis Swanson. He's right here. He gives a great hug. Kelby Clements also. Two guys that I just look forward every Sunday to get their embrace. They are great huggers. I'm sure if you ask them, they will give you hugs. But this is a way to just say, I love you. This is a way to express that. I've been told, just in my own, not, nobody really brought it up this week, I don't think, but I know that uh, sometimes I can be intimidating. I don't know, maybe it's the ugly face here, it's uh, the position or whatnot. I can be intimidating. So one of the things that I try to do is just give a hug because I don't want to be unapproachable. I, wanna, I just want to give a hug. So sometimes it's a little weird. I know that. <laughs> but it is a way that people feel loved. And if that's too awkward, here's the second one. Give a handshake then. Just give a handshake, a nice, firm handshake. Look them in the eyes, shake their hand, say it's nice to, nice to meet you. How are you doing today? Whether you know them or don't know them, just give a handshake. Start there. But beyond that, we can give a hug, we can give a handshake, genuine conversation. It's a third way that we love one another. Just that, it doesn't necessarily always have to be long, but make it about them. 
People feel loved when you ask them how they are doing and then continue to ask follow-up questions, uh, getting to know them and not being so quick to always talk about ourselves. People want to be known and loved, and this is the, one of the ways that we can express that and show great brotherly love for one another. Fourth, you can pray right now for them. It's something that we've been encouraged to do. It's something that Paul uh, modeled for us just a few passages before. It's something that I think we're working on as, we, as the, born out of that genuine conversation. It's, uh, it's then, I think, good and right and an expression of love for us if we just say, hey, can I pray for that right now for you? doesn't have to be a long prayer. It doesn't have to be, you know, all high and mighty and King Jamesy. It's just pray a general, genuine prayer for them. You can eat with them. Sharing a meal with people is one of the best ways to show love. You're like, well, I'm not a great cook. Well, I guess you could invite them over, but you might not, uh, they may never come back. So just go out to lunch with them. After church or something, just enjoy a meal. Enjoy a cup of coffee. What is expressed around the table is, uh, is so important. It's, it's hard to even express the value that we have when we share a meal with them. Number six is a big one. Watch their kids. Those with uh, young kids, this can be a, a, a great expression. And I realize that's a big one. And some of you are like, you don't want me watching your kids, all right? And that's okay. Don't offer this one. It's just one of the ways, you know. These are just helpful expressions. None of these are necessarily, you know, commands of Scripture. Don't get me wrong on this. But these are just ways that people feel loved. And so if you have the ability and the time to do it and the desire, offer to watch their kids. Maybe not on the first meeting, by the way. And if, I, if I'm just meeting you, that's a big step. But if you can, it's a great way. Number seven, here's another one. Send an encouraging note. Just those words of affirmation. Maybe initially it's just a text. Maybe it's through an email. But if you want to go big, send something through the mail. <laughs> yes, the post office is still in business. It's a little more expensive now. Stamps are up around 50 cents or something. But just write a note encouraging them. Maybe it's born out of that conversation. Maybe it's just a scripture verse. Maybe it's just something, hey, I was thinking about you today. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know that you are loved. So send a note. Or talk to them. Here's number eight. Call them. You know, follow up on that conversation to check in. Maybe they shared uh, something. They have surgery this week, something that you prayed about. Just follow up with a quick phone call. Doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a hour-long, long conversation. Maybe, maybe you've just found your best friend. You have a lot to catch up on, but give them a call. Phones are more than just texting and web surfing now. They still work to, you know, call the person on the other line. Number nine, we can create something. Create something for them. Are you a photographer? Offer to take a family photo. Maybe you're just snapping photos and, and send it to them. Maybe you are an artist and you like to create and do things and you could bless somebody and really ex express your love for them. Create it, give it to them. Maybe it's some, maybe you're a woodworker or maybe God's given you some other gift and you can uh, just create something nice for them. Maybe you're a crocheter or a knitter. All those things that ladies do with string and stitch and all that stuff. You can create something. Number 10, lend a hand. You can lend a hand. Are you handy? Maybe you're a mechanic. Maybe uh, you're really great at cleaning. Maybe you're uh, uh, good at cooking. 
Just offer to lend a hand. Those skills that God has given you to do this, maybe as you see that, wow, here's a need, or connect them with somebody that might be able to lend a hand. You will express a true and genuine love. You will be doing this. You will be following this, urging you, brothers, to do this more and more. We're not doing it to win their approval. We're not just doing these things to gain friends. We're not doing these things as a way to like, okay, I gotta build up, uh, uh, put these more bricks on my side here so God will, uh, will look at me and be pleased with the things that I'm doing. We're not doing it for that. We're not doing, we don't love other people to earn our salvation, do we? We don't do that. We love one another because God first loved us. And as we live in that, just like we were singing these great songs of God's love for us, how great and how marvelous it is. And as that is poured into us, that is spilled over then into how we treat and love one another. Can we be a church body? Can we be brothers and sisters that excel in this loving one another God's way? Can we do that? Can that be a defining characteristic as people think, wow, that guy goes to redemption. That woman is a part of redemption and they are some of the most loving, genuine, warm people that I have ever met. Let's be that. The second defining characteristic, are you ready for it? Verses 11 and 12, we work in a winsome way. We work in a winsome way. Do you notice how verse 11 kind of took a turn there? It says, he's talking about love, you love one another, do this more and more, and it's connected here, but it does seem like it takes a little turn. He, 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 he says, and aspire to live quietly, and he then begins to explain how we work. And there's some context here that you need to know about the Thessalonians, okay? Remember, these were real people in a real city called Thessalonica in a real church that the Apostle Paul planted and raised up, and then he was, he was uh, kicked out, not by the church, but by local authorities and all that stuff. He got the boot, and so he left these people and was writing a letter to them, teaching them how to live. But there's, so there's some context here that Paul or someone had apparently taught them about the end times or Jesus' return and, and the rapture of the church, and they were all kinds of confused. Some of us are probably confused as well about those things, right? You've heard maybe terms like amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, pre-tribulational, pre-wrath, all those things. Anybody confused about that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, we're going to get a little bit more teaching on it in uh, the coming passages, so don't worry but they were confused. Some thought they had missed it altogether. Some thought the Lord had returned. They missed it. And he's like, ah. They were fretting about it. He says, no, no. He clears that up in a bit. Others, misunderstanding the, its imminent nature or the fact that Christ could return at any moment, like right now, really, he could. That's, that's a, a foundational understanding of this. The reality that it could happen at any point, they were misunderstanding that, and so they had stopped working altogether. Like, okay, Christ is going to return. I've got to do all these things. They've stopped working. They started prepping. They were fearful and fretting. It's like those people today that build bunkers and start stockpiling food and firearms, watching too much Fox News, and they're writing blogs to get everybody worked up, right? They were doing that even in those days, and he's addressing that issue here because apparently it was prevalent in this church. We know this also because he had to address it even in his second letter in 2 Thessalonians. It's right after. I want to actually take you there. So if you're on 1 Thessalonians, turn to the right a couple pages, and you'll see 2 Thessalonians, right? 
Okay? This was a follow-up letter that he wrote a little bit after this. It's been recorded for us. We have it here as Holy Scripture. But turn to chapter 3 and verse 10. He gives a very similar command to what we just saw, and I want to point it out here to you. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12. He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So stop right there. You need to know, like this was apparently a big issue. He was teaching them about it when he was with them. It made it into the first letter and the second letter. Apparently something's going on here, right? He gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Right? You don't work, you don't get to eat. Eating is the fruit or the result of our hard work together, okay? So there's this. If we're sitting around, don't expect to be Hung, or don't expect to be fed, expect to be hungry. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy as at work, but busy bodies, okay? Meddling, you know, always involved in other people's business, stirring them up, you know, and different things. Verse 12, then now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living, okay? Now I'll turn back to our passage that we're in, and you'll see how this mirrors 11 and 12. Basically, the same commands, maybe said a little bit differently, but the same thing in view. They were not working. They were just being idle and fretting and worrying about this future event that they misunderstood. And they were not just uh, like sitting at home, but they were, uh, they were all kinds of out of control about it. You know, getting everybody worked up and writing blogs and, and uh, you know, getting in everybody else's business and, and uh, just causing a big stir about these things. And so that's the context. That's what he is teaching us. They're anxious about this return. He says, hey, stop. This is how you wait for it. It hasn't happened. This is how you wait. This is what you do. You work winsomely. And he has these three instructions. Did you see him there? He says, aspire to live quietly right? Aspire to live quietly. There's the, we have lots of aspirations. We have lots of ambitions. Maybe living quietly isn't one of them, but I would say that it should be. And what he's meaning here is let your actions and the way that you live your life do the talking. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be a pain. Don't be worked up in your own life and working and getting everybody else worked up. It's not that we just like walk around like quiet, like, hey, you know, you know, but he's, he's, he's pointing out the, the opposite here. We're not to be loud and, and all fired up about everything else. Aspire to live quietly. And the second is like it. It takes it another step. He says, mind your own affairs. You know, he's saying, be diligent in the responsibility that God has given you. Do your work with excellence. You know, don't just like go and insert yourself into everybody else's business. You don't have to like be, be you know, specifically with the purpose of getting them worked up. This is called meddling, right? Are we, are we to be involved in other people's lives as, as the church? Right. He just told us to love one another. We can't love one another if we're not involved in some degree. But here the difference maker is that we're involved with the purpose of getting them worked up. Did you hear so-and-so? You know, it's gossiping. It's, did you know what this is happening? Did you hear this? You know, that person, they're living this way or this is, this is, yeah, mind your own affairs. Do your work. Be diligent with the responsibility God has given you. The third instruction here, and to work with your hands. Is he saying everybody's supposed to be a carpenter, a manual laborer? No, he's not saying that. But what he's saying is that you need to be purposeful and productive. Don't be lazy and idle. 
Get a job. Do something to, that will show, that will have some fruit in your life. Because they were just sitting around and he's saying, no, get a job, do something that is productive, okay? Have you ever heard the, the phrase or those skits that comedians uh, will do sometimes? Don't be that guy. You ever heard of that? You ever seen a skit? Or it was one of the things that uh, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, um, they had an improv group and uh, they would always do these caricatures of those guys like that were on campus, those college guys. They're like, don't be, don't be that guy. You know, because they're trying to point out the obvious thing that is that we're not supposed to be in order to highlight what we should be. So don't be this guy. From these verses here, don't be obnoxious Oscar. All right, don't be obnoxious Oscar in these events. Rather be quiet Quentin. Okay, don't be obnoxious Oscar. Be quiet Quentin. Don't be meddling Mary. Okay, don't be meddling everyone else's affairs. Don't be her. Rather be diligent Danielle productive in her, responsible in her own work. Third, don't be lazy Larry. Don't be him. Don't be idle. Don't be sitting around. Be productive Paul. Show the fruit of your labors. Work hard. But he also takes us here. We see those three, and there's a fourth one here, how this verse ends. Just jump ahead. He says, be dependent on no one. Saying, don't be dependent Deb. Rather be responsible Rachel. And what this means here, this dependent is choosing to live a lifestyle that takes advantage of a person or a system. That's what it means to be dependent. That's, obviously, we are interdependent upon one another. We need other people in order to live. None of us are just silos. None of us are truly independent, even though we as Americans and especially as Texans hold to this independence, all right? Nobody is truly independent. We are all dependent, but this it's teaching us not to take advantage of a person, choosing to live this lifestyle that uh, is taking advantage of a system. But, you know, there's times when we do need to ask for help for a time, for a season, but not living a lifestyle. So don't be these people. Don't be obnoxious Oscar, meddling Mary, lazy Larry, dependent Deb. Rather, honor the Lord in how you work. We work in a winsome way. Did you see this? This is this is why this is so important. Look at verse 12. See, why is this so important? Verse 12 right here gives us the answer. You see the first two words that it begins with? So that. Underline them if, if you haven't. Whenever you see that in the scriptures, alarm should go off. As a Bible student, as you are reading God's word, so that always gives us the reason. There's other words like it. Therefore, you know, uh, just the word for, um, so that here are just those indicators as they give commands. Well, why do we do this? Why is it so important? Do you see it? Why do we work this way? Why do we love this way? Because we live in a watching world, right? You see that? So that you may walk properly before outsiders. How we walk, that's the Bible's term for our manner of life, uh, how we live our life, and this is being observed by outsiders, which is just a word for unbelievers. Here we have the family that are insiders, just that language. It's not like we're an elite club or anything like that. Don't get, get that, but God's people are, we're a family, and those that are unbelievers are outsiders, and we want them to become insiders. We want them to know the grace and the mercy and the love of God that is ours that we didn't deserve. That God in his, in his love gave to us before the foundation of the world that we might be saved. Nothing that we earned. We didn't pay dues to get in the club. It wasn't anything like that. God saved wretches like us and 
we're the undeserving benefactors of that. And so there are those that are outside of that. And we want them to know this. Loveless, obnoxious, meddling, lazy behavior repels people from the gospel. It repels people from Jesus. But that, that life is available to unbelievers, right? There's enough of loveless, obnoxious, lazy living in the world, is there not? There's, there's enough of that. And so that's unattractive. It's not winsome. But what is winsome is how the gospel teaches us to live. And this is a gospel issue. How we live our life does make a difference because it is tied to the gospel. How we behave and live both inside and outside the church shows people the difference that Jesus makes in our life. This is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus. I hope you know it. I hope you know the, the Lord, what he's done for us, what, what I've just explained, the love that he's shown to us, the sacrifice that he bore for us that can be ours by just simply saying, God, I can't do it on our own, repenting and believing on Christ, saying, Jesus, I need your help in this. I need your help, not just to live this way, but to, to follow you every day of my life. And I want others to know that as well. And so here's a, here's a diagnostic question for us. As we think of how we live our life, are we working in a winsome way? As a watching world, as the people in your workplace, as the, uh, the neighbors on your street, could they say this of you? Ready? Could they say this of you? If following Jesus looks like how blank, insert your name there, Blair, Aaron, whoever it might be, if following Jesus looks like how Blair lives his life, then I want that. Would an unbeliever say that of you? If the answer is no, then what, which of these things need to shift maybe to better point people to Christ? How are you living your life that would be repelling rather than attracting? That's what it means to be winsome. We want to live in such a way that honors the Lord and also is a attractive to a watching world. The gospel message is already offensive enough to tell, pe to tell people that you don't have it figured out, that you can't save yourself, that you are in your sin and completely unable to be saved is an offensive message. To tell people that, yes, you would have to change the way that you live, that there is a cost to following Christ is an offensive message. But God's people and their manner of life should not be. Our manner of life should not be. So remember, this is, we live a certain way. It's what we call unafraid witness. So that way people will know Christ and subsequently join us when Christ returns. And that's where he's going. You see the irony here? That they were living in a way that was lazy and idle and meddling and obnoxious, all because they were worried about Christ's return and the fact that they had missed it. But in so doing and living that way, they, they, were, they were doing the exact opposite that they hoped for. We want people to join us for that great day, and so we live in a way that distinguishes us from a watching world. We as Christians should be the most loving, hardworking people in our, in our business, in our street, in this church. We should be the most loving, hardworking people. 
This is how we work for Christ. This is how we use our gifts to serve, and this is how we do that. As a new church, as we're growing together, like a family that is newly forming, you know, as a family that is building a foundation, a family that is, is working out uh, all these, these kinks and coming together, this is how we do that. We don't always just worry about future plans. Sure, do we work for and do we uh, prepare and to plan for these things? Well, yes, but we're not worried about college right now. We're just a family that is being built together. So we are building and this is how we do it. Let us love one another God's way with that familial affection, with self-sacrifice and generosity. Let's work in a winsome way that is quiet and diligent and productive and responsible, all for God's glory, right? The advance of the gospel message. This is how we build. This is what we do. Let's pray and ask God's help for that. God in heaven.